1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. This is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Alan Lane about his new book, The Club on the Edge of Town, a pandemic memoir. So welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Um, This is possibly the best book I've read this year. Um, Certainly uh, the most important, perhaps. Um, And it was, you know, brilliant on so many levels. Um, And I've got lots and lots of questions um, that I want to ask you about it. And I'm sort of hopeful um, it's going to get a big uh, readership and and lots of listeners. But before we do that, we definitely need some um, kind of ground clearing to take place. And and this really is is a whole bunch of questions about who you are, what you do, where this uh, memoir takes place, And I guess kind of like why it's interesting and why it matters. So to introduce you, you're part of this theatre called Slung Low. um, And that's probably the first question. Who are Slung Low? What do you guys do? What kind of theatre company are you?
1: Yeah, great. Um, So Stunglow are a theatre company based in the north of England that um, has a a set of values, one of which is we all get paid the same, one of which is that we are in service to our community, and we make um, predominantly large-scale people's theatre, so that's large shows, normally in city centres, with people who don't do this for a living performing to make shows that you still get to hear about on Radio 4 and read about in the Times and all that good stuff um uh and we've been around yep 20 years and we're funded by the arts council and that's probably all you need to know about something i think
0: the next kind of like stuff i need to know is probably i was going to say you know where is holbeck but i should probably say like can you tell me a bit about leeds actually (laughs) and maybe tell me a bit about the north of england so yeah like what's so kind of interesting and special about leeds and, and where is um, Holbeck in, in relation to, to Leeds as
1: well. So um we we say we're made in the greater north because the type of theatre that we make, kind of big sprawling shows with hundreds of people in talking about the issues of certain places, couldn't really be made in say inner city London, there just isn't the real estate. So we, we do feel like we're kind of carved out the stone of the north. Um, and we've been in base, based in Leeds for a really long time now, and specifically an inner city ward called Holbeck, which is was the heart of the Industrial Revolution for about, you know, like five minutes back at the beginning of the Victorian era. And then since then has got slammed by every possible economic and social movement. So deindustrialization kind of killed it. Um, There was a whole series of post-war decline. Thatcher jumped up and down on it. Um, Austerity really did for it. And then COVID came along and kind of knocked it about. So it's it's still got the worst health outcomes of any ward in England. But... It is the most extraordinary place. And if you were, you guys were all here now, we could go to a Turkish supermarket where you'd have the best kebab in the north of England. We could go to England Road Primary School where 40 different languages are being spoken. And it is an amazing, vibrant and brilliant place. And we moved here 10 years ago, partly because we were worried that we were becoming a bit of a fireworks company. We, we went wherever the commissions were, did something for three months and then came home and we wanted to be rooted. And I think every theatre company has to have a hill that they're willing to die on, and ours is Holbeck. Our job is to serve the people of Holbeck with the best cultural life we possibly can on the understanding that we spend £500 million worth of public money every year, and some of that should be spent on the cultural life of the people of Holbeck. And it's our job to leverage that... um, cultural capital from knowing people like you from being able to get in the press from being able to get commissioned at the rsc or any of the other things that we can do and bring some value or financial value back to holbeck in the last three years we have done that by having our headquarters and running the oldest working men's club in britain which is called the holbeck which is um uh, which is in a brilliant 250 seat cabaret space um lounge bars snooker room you know, kind of classic working men's club and Everything we do here is on a pay what you decide basis and it operates as a community and creative space for everybody. I suppose the story of the the, the club is is the story of the book, but also that the book
0: tells the story of the pandemic. And it also tells a story about what the arts are for, how we should kind of organise Britain, how we should organise society. And and actually, many other quite quite touching personal stories as well. I guess, as you'd mentioned there, you know, this three-year relationship with the club. There's probably quite a few uh, models of uh, arts organisations having these relationships with um, institutions in, in places that maybe. Um, we're not designed to kind of hold particular kinds of of theatre or particular community activities, but but there's something I think particularly kind of unique that's going on in your story. And one of them actually is the club itself. And you'd mentioned, you know, its um, status as, as a working man's club and a very well established, you know, um, working man's club. But at the same time, at the start of the book, it's in pretty serious trouble, um, and, and I'm quite intrigued by sort of what the problems facing the place were, um, and they're actually the problems of, of you know, the kind of the, the local area more generally, but also what got you, as you say, you know, this um, theatre company that does, you know, sort of um, big, um, impressive, uh, huge shows, what, what got you thinking um, that this would be the venue for you to, uh, to, to place yourselves in?
1: So um, I think, well, the, well, immediately the problems were that this is a members' club, that is reliant in their current business model on people coming into a room with no windows and spending lots amount, uh, large amounts of money on booze in order to keep a much larger building open, and so like all. Clubs, Social clubs like this, the the decline in drinking, the increase in home drinking, the decline uh, when they brought in the smoking ban, and also the communities moving in around the club that either don't have a cultural history of drinking in places like this or just don't drink, all of that contributes to the fact that the post-war model of a bar that makes money in order to be a social space for the people of a place it just doesn't work anymore people don't drink enough what i find absolutely fascinating and the reason i got really excited about the club was this place was built in 1877 and it didn't have a bar for 50 years it was a it was a lecture hall and a games room It was a place where people came to be entertained and educated it was only in the 20th century when the kind of the, the the subs decrease because wages went lower. That they decided to kind of, if you if you like, capitalize on the fact that so much of their workforce were alcoholics. That if men were going to go and spend money in a place, it might as well be owned cooperatively by the community, which is brilliant because everybody got to go on holiday to Blackpool. But is is as flawed as any other model. And um, the thing that's really catching up with with this club and was catching up with this club and is catching up with lots of others is that it only defines its community as a very small sliver of Holbeck. In this instance, sometimes that's a long racial issue, sometimes it's along gender issues. but in this instance, it literally defines people who want to come to a place and drink. Now, like any community, Holbeck is diverse, but it doesn't have people who want to do that. So the, the problem we found when we arrived was that it was in unbelievable amounts of debt, and its business plan was just going to increase that debt because it could not sell enough booze. Now we believe that if you're going to have a theatre company in the the neighbourhood, there should be some perks. So we do a lot of Christmas. We do a lot with the local schools. We lend out our van. There should just be perks to having professional artists knocking around the place. And for us, one of those was, we've got to have an office. We might as well have an office here. And along the way, we were able to bring a kind of real financial stability to the club. But based on, and this was the argument that we've never really been able to win with the members based on the idea that the building can be more useful to its community it can be useful to its community in more ways than just providing booze and that i think is at the heart of nearly all of these social clubs where retired people simply cannot believe that people want to spend their social time in other ways other than drinking alcohol and i think that's a real that's a real kind of um intellectual problem you know right at the heart of the philosophies of this club but for the last 3 years it's been a community and social um, club, and it's it's financially thrived as a result of it, but not because we've sold more beer. The sort of front end of the book, you, you do two things. You set out
0: what you were doing initially, and, and you've, you've sort of gestured to that already, you know, the sense of doing something, a range of somethings that were not just selling booze to the usual suspects. But at the same time, you, you kind of grapple with this big idea about what cultural democracy might be like for the theatre company, the local area, and I think more sort of generally. And I suppose understanding this idea of cultural democracy gives us a route into the kind of activities you did. So, so what is that term, and, and and what does that idea
1: mean? Uh, well, I mean, um, I'm 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 loath to I'm loath to define it in in front of an academic, but um, <laughs> um, for, for me, cultural, for us here, cultural democracy is about the idea that. The bloke that lives next door has as much right to define what good culture is as I do as a professional artist and how that manifests that, that culture belongs to all of us and actually Alan Lane's definition of culture is there's no less but certainly no more important than anyone else's. And, and we've got into trouble in this nation in the last 50 or 60 years by having an incredibly small ty- well, very few types of people defining what good culture is and as a result the vast majority of our population has moved away from a kind of um recognized culture and and and, fi- and and especially art and felt quite disconnected from it all because the number of people defining what it was was too small and so here in like practically what that means for us in the whole back is that if you live if you're part of our community you can program whatever you want if you come to me and say I really want a comedy about the old testament I'll find a comedy about the old testament if you come to me and say I don't want you to program anything out and I want the room because I'm going to put on my own event then we'll get out of the way if that involves who've run up after you and putting the sound system on, then that's what we need to do. And actually what we've discovered in having a kind of almost basically open policy when it comes to who gets to operate the levers of cultural power, such as they are in Sunglo, is that everything works. Pretty much everything, apart from a few sort of fundraisers for uh, political parties and some other stuff like that, has been successful within its own terms. So when the bloke down the road puts a battle of the bands on because his neighbour's got his bike nicked and he wants to raise money for it, me and you, as people who go to the theatre a lot, might sit and watch that show and go, Jesus Christ, this is a car crash. It's not very slick. However, the people who are there are having a whale of a time and they are and the bands sing and that's their point and they raise loads of money and the guy gets his bike back. We've lived in a world for too long where I suppose people like me and you come along and go, no, 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 that won't do. Or even worse, we go, oh, there's a risk to putting this on. And you go, what's the risk? Because I have had award-winning, celebrated national newspaper talked about theatre here, of which three people have come and watched, and apparently that is not as much of a risk as letting Bronya crack on and put a birthday party on for her grandmother, where 200 people will come and sing and dance and do all the things that we might want them to do at a piece of theatre. So that's for us the kind of grappling with the idea of cultural democracy, that people get to choose what has value, um, and and then giving them as much of the levers of power as we possibly can. I think that's that's what we've been about. I mean that that choice. I think there are there are a few people who'll
0: be listening to this podcast that would sort of disagree with that, and 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 I think you'd have a sense of like you know that sounds amazing, everything should be like that. But one, one of the things that. I really like about the book is you don't shy away from the difficulty of choices and, and particularly how, um, you know, parts of, of, of the institution uh, were sort of, you know, quite, I guess, hostile to, to some of that um, cultural freedom that you were trying to offer to the community. And this is both sort of fascinating in terms of it's not usually the kind of the difficulty uh, that we associate with stuff like cultural democracy usually as you've said it's to do with the idea of you know risks that the aesthetics won't be high quality or, or whatever language we'd use but also actually it you know it is a really quite quite kind of it's i mean it's i have to say the book is hilarious through throughout um you know there, there are some very funny moments in the book but it is really clear that there are costs to the idea of You know, you can throw open an institution to anyone who wants to use it. So I'm interested in what some of the tensions were with the Working Man's Club as as a kind of an institution and an organization. Um, there, There are various, as I say, you know, hilarious things where it turns out, you know, comedy riffs on the prime minister looking like a mop are massive kind of culture war battlegrounds with some of the existing members.
1: Yeah, I, um, I suppose one of, the, one of our mottos here is that everybody gets what they want but crucially nobody gets to stop other people having what they want and it's always the second part of that sentence I, I, we've never been asked to do anything at this club that we haven't been able to do within a couple of weeks Like we've put on operas and drag queens and magic shows and plays and all sorts and, and actually people's demands are, re- are really very achievable what we've had massive amounts of problem with is people not wanting other people to have what they want so some of that is about so some of that is just, you know, the classic slung low struggle, which is the the powers that be in the arts don't like the idea that everyone might get to define what good art is because they've had that position of authority and they don't want to give it up. And some of it is that, and certainly we're you know, we're a pay what you decide venue in in and and we're frowned upon by cert, certain elements of the establishment, which is all good and proper. But Closer to home and much more surprising to me was the idea that even though it is the only way forward for a kind of financial future, it is still true that, you know, we have members who get angry about the idea that the Ghanaian community, we have a particularly large Ghanaian community, will use the club. Um, even though they are members, like you can become a member for £6, they will still get angry about that. They will still talk about proper members and not proper members. And it's really hard sometimes to not think that they just mean white. And actually, they don't just mean white. And that's a sort of laziness on my part. What they mean is they mean people who are willing to come and accept in totality the culture that existed before. And practically, and this is going to sound like I'm taking the mickey, and it's really not, is to sit in a room with no windows, drink a pint of beer and play bingo. And if you want to come and use this space for something else, even though it doesn't stop the people drinking the pints of beer and doing the bingo, if you want to do that other thing in a different room in the same building, you will create antagonism in front in in uh within the people who existed here before or and i i don't know i didn't mean that in an anthropological sense i mean literally in this room existed here before and i find that fascinating because so much of that speaks i think the kind of macro version of the culture war where you know we were absolutely furious about people arriving from other countries even though actually it doesn't really impact on our quality of living at all um but just the sheer idea that they will not Wholesale accept the cultural life and signifiers of of our pre-existence. I find really extraordinary. And and what that you know, a lot of big words there. Actually, it just meant that people didn't like other people who didn't look like them coming into use the space, and that is um. That is difficult. I'm not madly convinced that that's so wildly different from some of the experiences I've had in theatres. I've worked in some posh theatres in my time, when uh, you know old, old people in in blazer jackets complain that young people are laughing in the wrong parts of plays and that sort of thing. So I'm not convinced it's it's not a specifically Holbeck or working class experience, but it is real, um, and it is about holding on to the thing you've got, even if you know it, it means that you're being self-destructive. Yeah, clapping between movements at symphonies. You know, something
0: that at no point would you associate with the battleground of a working man's club, but, you know, precisely these sorts of you're not behaving in the way that we expect you to behave, and thus, you know, you're sort of not one of us. And that would have been a brilliant topic for a book and a brilliant topic for this book. But obviously, you know, the subtitle, A Pandemic Memoir, the book radically changes as soon as 2020 hits. And, you know, the, the story becomes um both, you know, much broader in, in terms of um, the kinds of uh, ideas that are in the book, but also it becomes a story of, I guess, you know, your personal struggle to deal with the impact of the COVID pandemic in, in 2020. Uh, and I guess to distill this and it is I think difficult to, to boil down because there was so much that you and, and the organization um, and I mean you in the sense of the network um, and the book is at pains the kind of stress the importance of the team effort and you know the, the kind of the crew that, that are surrounding and the community that are surrounding the Holbeck but what sort of happened when COVID hit how did the organisation pivot to do, I guess, you know, something very different because theatres were closed, audiences weren't allowed in, but also to carry on being responsive to what the community needed at the time.
1: Yeah. So we, so we, so we closed the bar um, a little early because most of our members are kind of old and we're, we're at real risk from that COVID. And, and we had a long chat about whether, you know, what should we do? Cause at the time we were all being sent home and it felt it felt like that that may well be the safest thing to do, but it also felt kind of quite cowardly that if we all went home and came back in what we thought was going to be three or four weeks, um, it was going to be very hard to go back to trying to convince people who were already quite suspicious of us that we, we we were in service to them that like oh no we're on your side, but actually when the shit hit the fan we um, we, we we escaped. So we we decided we wouldn't do that, and instead we wrote a letter to our two hundred nearest fan uh, neighbours and said. Um, we're here, we can help you, you know, we're old enough to kind of feel like we know what we're doing, but we're young enough to not be terrified of this COVID thing. And if you need anything, let us know. And they did, they got in touch, they wanted shopping and dogs walking and all sorts of bedding changing. And the council found out about that and said, that's great. Could you do it for the whole ward? And we were like, yeah, absolutely. Not really knowing what that meant. So what it meant was that the ward of two and a half thousand, well, in the end, eight and a half thousand households. If you rang Leeds City Council saying you needed help during COVID time, you were put through to us. And in the beginning, that meant prescriptions and dog walking and all sorts of befriending calls. But actually, quite quickly, it became about, I need food. There was an absolute crisis of income. Um, and some of that in the beginning was to do about not being able to physically access food, but but actually that was just disguising the real problem, which was people did not have enough money to feed their families. And so we became what we... we we learned was a non-means tested self-referral food bank which meant that if you lived in Holt-Watt, if you lived in leeds full stop and you asked us for food we would provide it and in the end over 15 months we would do 15,202 food deliveries which is which is a lot and we, we we got we got down towards the end to kind of doing 400 deliveries in a day and in order to do that we we needed to shift everything we were doing but i one of the arguments we were we we kept having was that it was just an extension of what we were doing but in different forms so we were still serving our community and we were still using a lot of the logistical um, skills that we had before and crucially we were telling the story we were still storytelling and and we had to raise a lot of money and the the best quickest way of raising the money was having me go and talk about the food bank anywhere and we would get money and so there was still a sense that we were just adapting our theatre skills in order to be in service in a different way although obviously it involved you know lots of lorries full of baked beans and all that stuff. But it was still the same mission if it's presenting itself in a slightly different way.
0: I mean, actually, one way of distilling that is is something like the LS11 Art Gallery project, which um, is bound up with you delivering food and the kinds of, um, you know, presents you've got going round and about um, the ward, round and about the community, but at the same time thinking about the idea of, you know, it's still possible to do art within this. Um, and also, <laughs> which the payoff to the chapter, you're, very, you're at pains to stress how working with the council, you know, these are good people. Uh, none of these people are, you know, kind of particularly evil or nasty, but also it tells you something about running up against bureaucracy that, you know, is really struggling to, to do what it needs to do to provide for people, but also at the same time is set up in a way to kind of stop things happening so so yeah what, what was the story of the LS11 art gallery
1: so we when we we started delivering all this food which meant that we had a kind of privilege which would, we were allowed to leave our house in that first lockdown no one was allowed to leave you, you you got to do your Boris Bimble for an hour and we were out all the time delivering food collecting food and so we realised people were in their houses and scared. So we dropped a letter through. We, we pretty much fly the entire ward saying, look, you, you, you're trapped in your house and you're scared, but you're still brilliant. So make a piece of art, take a picture, do a painting, whatever it is, and, and then ring us on this number and we'll come and take a picture of it. And then we would have that printed on weatherproof boards and put them up at A0 and then put them all the lampposts. So that when you went for your Boris Bimble, you would see uh the na- the the kind of art of your neighbors and and it was incredibly popular it was uh, like it, it was an idea that I wasn't very taken with at first it was the, the rest of the gang and uh, you know goes to prove how much I know it was incredibly popular and the thing firstly the quality of the work was extraordinary by any sort of objective measure it was brilliant art and then the second thing is that, that it would go missing and people would ring and say the picture's gone missing but it it wasn't vandalized people were stealing them and putting them up in their homes And they were putting up the art of their neighbours in their homes so they could look at it more. And I just, I found that extraordinary. Um, It was brilliant. But, um, and it was, it proved to be very popular and it was on the telly and everything else. And one night I was having a bath and the phone rang and it it was the, the chief lamppost engineer of Leeds City Council who had seen us on the telly and was furious that we'd done this unbelievably dangerous thing. And it, and I think you're right in that. I mean, I mean, this guy was a nice guy. Everyone at the council was trying the hardest, but he 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 spent a good ten minutes explaining how what I'd done was really dangerous, and I was I was for the high jump, and I, you know all this good stuff, and and that was followed by ten minutes of me explaining to him that it had actually been commissioned by Leeds City Council, and and and, and uh, you know I could go and take it down, but he would have to promise me that I wouldn't have to pay him all his money back, and and I think. It, the thing, I mean, the thing. The whole food bank, but especially that moment taught me was that there's no such thing as Leeds City Council. There is a huge, sprawling bureaucracy that doesn't does app, it doesn't. It's not that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. The right hand simply does not think it's the right hand. The number of people, it's the same with the Arts Council. You sit down with people and they go, "Oh, well, I'm not really the Arts Council," and you know, like, well, you got a full time job there. It feels like you are, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm just, I'm just playing the game." And actually, I've never really met anybody who who was like, Yeah, I'm really into what the Leeds City Council's doing. And I'm like, well, and so much of it, you, you know, the, the the using the green space more versus the actually how the parks are patrolled policy are at, at complete loggerheads. The funding us to be a food bank, whilst a different part of the council telling us not to give away food, the paying for us to do a lamppost gallery, the chief post, uh, the chief lamppost engineer. Getting furious and threatening me with all sorts of nonsense. They're all examples of how actually these municipal authorities have become so large that there's there's barely any controlling them because in large part nobody who works there thinks they're responsible for anything. And that's what we discovered with the food bank thing, where we would run up against genuine, real legal opposition from the same organization who was funding us to do the thing we were doing. And that and that was a real eye-opener. Um the amount of bureaucracy and politics involved in giving away free bread is was I, I mean i thought the theater world was bad but it's absolutely nothing in in comparison to the social care world it was extraordinary
0: yeah i mean it, it, if anyone wants a sort of useful primer on the the kind of failings on the one hand of of how we've organized the welfare state but also as, as you say some of the the real kind of binds these organizations that are trying to help end up in. um, And and actually there's a quite poignant moment um, quite late on in the book, you know, where where you have this, um, if I can call it like a run-in with um, a big uh, supermarket giving away food. And there is an element of on the one hand, you you know, kind of cutting through just the bullshit of, of dealing with them, but on the other hand, realizing that, you know, there's gonna be a couple of families that don't get a cake as a result of that. Um, And there is, you know, a sort of, I had a real admiration for you staying, you know, sort of sane (laughs) over the course um, of of the book, Um, having to deal with those, you know, even where institutions are trying to help they're set up in ways that seem to be almost kind of deliberately obstructive. And to sort of pick up and develop that, I'm sorry sorry to cut cut over you, is a story of basically heroes throughout the book, um, and again, I've mentioned you know it's not your story; it's the story of community. But I wonder if, if there are sort of like any particular characters you'd like to pick out as as real sort of yeah heroes from the story.
1: Um, I think uh, I think Liz, who is the who is the volunteer who who came to, she was a lighting designer actually and she came to us because she knew of us through the theatre world rather than the kind of locality and she was a big Leeds United fan and and she came and she was she was she was like a, a, a quite a large cohort of our volunteers is that we we obviously needed them but I I always got the impression she needed us slightly more because we she was very ill we didn't really realize it but she was very ill and and they, it became obvious only afterwards that she was she was dying. And actually her time with us, a few months, she became physically less and less able to be able to do the kind of basic volunteering of delivering food until finally one day she turned up in my office in a full Leeds United strip with the kind of socks pulled up and and decided she would take over the masterminding of the Christmas toy deliveries, which now I look back at it, it was such an obvious, it wasn't a cry for help, but an obvious like, I'm going to have my day. I'm going to have the perfect day where I do something beautiful for 300 children and i do it wearing my favorite clothes in all the world even though it is absolutely ridiculous for a 50 year old woman to wear a full football strip with the socks pulled up and, and and it was the most vivid vivid example i think of how people gave their absolute everything you know that people and 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 in return got their absolute everything so they were you know we we clearly were a sort of source of stability for her over over those months which must have been i mean she never spoke about it which i find incredibly sad but they must have been horrendous to be to be dying in that in that environment of covid where where you couldn't move around you couldn't go see people you couldn't hold people and 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 she replaced all of that with masterminding the giving away of 300 toys to children who wouldn't otherwise get them whilst wearing a football strip and 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 that that as an example of of living your best life which sort of inspires me I'm like good for you Liz um we were really lucky we we were really lucky we were backed up by by amazing volunteers who who gave their all but also by some people within the system of the city council who very quietly and and without ever a curtain call sort of Gently managed to keep us going, even in the face of quite a lot of corporate desire for us to stop. It's it, it's it's even for a Labour council, it, it's it's quite the act of political radicalism to have a food bank decide they're just going to give food whoever wants it. And and it was only after the fact that we realised there was quite a few bureaucrats who were doing a really good job of protecting us from getting shut down. And that and I think those people are sort of the are one of the many quiet heroes of this time.
0: Yeah, uh, the book is is, is is absolutely full of them. And, you know, e- each of them has, um, e- even the, you know, the sort of relatively minor characters um, has an important role in, in basically ensuring what happened in 2020 happened. And, and in some ways, perhaps offering a, a kind of a, a blueprint of, of what an arts organisation, you know, can and, and possibly should be. And, and one of my sort of concluding questions before I can... Well. Don't know what that was. Uh, b- before I come to a, a general question about what's happening now, um, is posed by one of the chapters in the book, and and really this is a code for like what did the cultural sector think? But you call one of the chapters, "Why does a theatre company run a food bank?" And I'm intrigued by your answer to that.
1: Um, well, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a really br- there's a kind of basic answer, which is we are in service to the people of Holbeck, and we are, we are committed to giving the best cultural life possible now in an ideal world i would i would want that to be high days and holidays and things magical impossible things for them to see and experience and do but none of that was possible during that time and the thing that really struck and was just so clear to us was that just because none of that was possible doesn't mean that that mission ever got cancelled so we're not for selling tickets we're not even for putting shows on ideally, you know, if I had my own way, we're for big outdoor shows, with lots of fire, and lots of joy, and lots of magic, but if we can't be for that, that doesn't mean we stop, because that's not our mission, our mission isn't to do that, that's just the me- mechanism by which we achieve it, our mission is to give the best possible cultural life, to the people of Holbeck, that's our job, and if they shut the theatres, then that job still exists, you just, the thing, the, the tool you have to do it with, isn't there anymore, uh, And one of the things we talk about very clearly is we do pay what you decide, we bring big artists in and we we make them perform in accessible ways. And if we've got a big cabaret in the car park, we've got a a stage outside and the band's warming up and it's amazing and it's pay what you decide, but you're within earshot of our theatre and you don't know how to feed your kids in the morning, there's no realistic way you can turn up to that show and enjoy it. So therefore we're just idiots making noise in your community without due respect. So there is a degree to which... The whole of my community is of interest to me. Their mental health, their physical wealth, their financial health, the injustices that they face in a system designed to stamp on them when they—all of that is of interest to me as an artist. Because if I wanted to just put on work in a in a vacuum that just had people, I would go and do that. There are plenty of places to do that. I shan't name them here for fear of embarrassing them, but that they exist. But I'm not doing that. What we're doing here is we're serving the people of Holbeck. So if the people of Holbeck all of a sudden get trapped in their buildings, in their homes, our job is to work out how to get some culture into their homes. Just as if the people of Holbeck tell me that they are hungry, well, it doesn't matter how good my show is. I gotta help them feed themselves and their families before anything else. And it just that just struck me as absolutely bloody absolutely obvious. And and I think that sustained us for that 18-month period. It just struck me as that was the only reasonable response. Um, that's why I a theatre company runs a food bank, I think.
0: The, the book ends on um, a sort of quite positive note, you know, the reopening. I mean, th- things are not normal, but, you know, an element of, of kind of, um, as, as you say, getting back to doing outdoor theatre and, um, you, you know, almost a, a, a sort of rebirth of, of the institution of sorts and, and, and it has this kind of, you know, w- wonderful um, positive note really that, uh, that, that it maybe um, ends on but I'm, I'm slightly kind of um, cheekily thinking what about the rest of the story and, and I'm intrigued to know sort of what's happening now both in terms of um, the, the organisation and, and the club and in terms of sort of um, your and, and
1: Slunglow's work. So, I mean, the, the the brilliant thing I think about, or the thing I've been most pleased about since COVID is that that we had to put down those responsibilities. We, I mean, we couldn't carry on being a being a food bank to everyone who needed food simply because it was being funded by people who would expect us in normal times to put on theatre. So, there was a degree to which we knew we had to put down those responsibilities. We had to lay them down. And and some really smart people said to us, but how are you going to be changed? How will you be different in the future as a result of these? And I, and I think we we honoured them best we could. You know, we, we started the community football club because one of the things we learned about our community when we were delivering the food was that we have the worst health outcomes of any ward in England and we have absolutely no organised adult sport. And it was just very simple for us to to kind of fix that and say, well, what do you want? And everyone told us a, a women's and a men's football team. And, and we created, the, you know, the slung low version of that. So the cost, you know, the, the strips amazing and um, it's free. So we did all the things you would expect us to do with a football club, but still there are people exercising now in a place that they weren't before. And, and our biggest, uh, the place we would deliver the most amount of food was the local primary school. So we're now in residence with the local primary school and an awful lot of our family programming is being done by a small group of children from that school because that, that is the kind of natural extension of that relationship once you take away, just as the food bank was the extension of the principles of service once you add COVID, once you take away the ability to be a food bank, what are you left with that's interesting to a theatre company? Um, we are in service to the people of Holbeck, and so um, not the Holbeck. And and actually, a few months ago, we decided uh, at the AGM, we asked the members to, to vote us out. So we will leave the club at the end of this calendar year. Um and we will leave it we will leave it principally because the future vision of this club we could not find a way to share with the committee. The committee have a have a vision for this club which is very clear, that involves um specific communities, that involves behaving in certain ways, uh, and that's absolutely fine. That is in, in according to the rules of cultural democracy, they absolutely um they are you know, that is to be honored in some respects. However, that doesn't mean that me and mine have to spend our energy and money supporting it. That's just simply, you know, we have to have shared values, otherwise we move on. However, we leave the club kind of physically accessible, hugely renovated and entirely debt free. So I'm very proud of what we've done here. And I think one of the things that in the arts we really struggle with is the idea of everything has to be forever. And actually, it's how we end up with loads of compromised things that don't quite do what they were meant to do. And and I think we will leave the club with quite quite light hearts because we know that we are going on to... We're not leaving Holbeck. We're not abandoning our responsibilities. We're opening a new theatre next to our primary school because, again, we're constantly evolving and developing and wondering how best can we serve. And and, and the final thought, and, and this is all relatively new, so you kind of reach me live on this thinking, but Holbeck is a place that does not have enough. It just doesn't have enough of anything. And it only has one publicly facing space that we were running and actually we realized that that's a bit of a problem you need alternatives you need the kind of ability for different communities to go in different places so the idea of us opening up another one was was one that when we realized there was a chance we kind of jumped at I think if you ask that question to me in two years time when we're in the new space and it's working is that I would have the same answer I had for the food bank and the same answer that I had for the post food bank which is this is all all just another chapter in one long story and the, and the story is very clearly about providing the best cultural life to the people of Holbeck and what happens when you trust a small group of determined artists to do that uh, and and kind of give them enough money to cause trouble and then get out of the way. Um, and I think that this is just the next really exciting chapter in that story.